listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate. Monsters Advocate is a bi-weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and everything in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. Well, dear listeners... It's finally come to this. In honor of our 50th episode, there is no more time for dawdling. It's time to visit the realm of dragons. For this, the following episode, and maybe even the episode after that, we will be taking a worldwide tour of all things dragon. Where they come from abilities and physical characteristics, and how human interaction with dragons has changed over time. Dragons are found in cultures throughout the world, from China to Greece, from India to North America. They are benevolent bringers of water and knowledge. They are at the literal roots of creation. They are greedy territorial cannibals. The dog may be the oldest companion humans chose for themselves, But the dragon has lingered at our fires since the beginning. Our instinctual memories of giant reptiles. Of the snakes and crocodiles that made quick work of our ancestors. They are fearsome, much maligned creatures. And I think it's high time we right some great wrongs about our mutton-loving reptilian neighbors. But before we can get into specifics, I think it's important to spend some time on the question of what a dragon is. You see, throughout history, dragons have come in very many shapes and sizes. From six-limbed, like the traditional Welsh dragon, to no-limbed, like the Lambton worm. There is no wrong way to make a dragon. That being said, for the purpose of helping to categorize all the different forms dragons take, Several broad types have been created based on physical characteristics. For example, in the series Game of Thrones and The Hobbit movie, Danny's dragons and Smog are dragons with no forelimbs, wings, and two hindlimbs, a physical build that categorizes dragons of the Wyvern class. Wyvern class dragons have become the most popular representation of non-Eastern type dragons in modern media as a creature with four limbs is able to borrow believability more easily than a six-limbed creature, thanks to winged four-limbed creatures such as bats and pterodactyls that already exist in nature. The two most recognizable classes for dragons are the Western or Continental Dragon and the East Asian or Lung Dragon. The Western Dragon is typically depicted as having two front feet, two hind limbs, and wings, such as the Welsh dragon, and the East Asian dragon is depicted as having a long, serpentine body, with four limbs and the ability to fly with no wings, such as the Chinese or Lung dragon. Outside of these classes, there are also the Drake class, which have four legs but no wings, the Lindworm, which has a long, serpentine body and two limbs, usually front limbs, but wings are optional, empeters, which combine the attributes of snakes and birds, and worms, which can also be referred to as worms, 
spelled W-O-R-M-S, or with a Y or a U instead of an O if you're feeling extra fanciful, which have no limbs, no wings, and cannot fly, but are often enormous and in possession of a breath weapon. All of the dragons of all of these classes can, of course, have the option of having more than one head. This doesn't cover every class of dragon, but these are the most common classes you might come across. And while these classes are useful for sorting dragon myths based on the type of dragon encountered, I feel it's important to point out all of these different classes of dragons are still dragons. No one class is a true dragon over the other classes. So, if types are your thing, and someone calls a dragon in Skyrim a dragon instead of a wyvern, there's no need to correct them. Both terms are correct. One is just a little more specific to the physiology of the dragon. For the first part of the series, we'll be starting with the western or continental dragon, wyverns, lindworms, and worms. These dragons are characterized as almost always having a breath weapon, whether it's fire or poisonous breath, and this iconic trait shared in common with these classes of dragon is thought to have been inspired by early accounts of various species of spitting cobra, some of which are able to project their venom as far as 6.6 feet or 2 meters. These classes of dragon are the most often encountered in Indo-European myths and legends, and often, their role in these stories as antagonists boils down to these three motivations. 1. The dragon is guarding something of value, usually a treasure but sometimes a princess. 2. The dragon is terrorizing a village. Or 3. Killing the dragon will benefit the hero in some way, whether it's for fame or magic powers. Unlike in the mythology of East Asia, the dragon of European and Grecian origins is generally regarded as malevolent, a savage creature with little regard for humanity's well-being. And, as humanity obstinately refuses to be part of any natural food chain, the feeling has been mutual. Also, unlike their gentler eastern counterparts, when not making their homes in distant mountain caves, Indo-European dragons like to get up close and personal with their human neighbors. For example, there are quite a few legends involving worms in which the worm is brought to a settlement as a baby, decides it very much likes the location, and then spends the next several years coiled around a hill in the middle of town, much to the chagrin of the human inhabitants. A great example of this is the Lambton Worm, a dragon that was active in the Durham County of Northeast England during the time of the Crusades. The legend goes that John Lambton, the heir of the Lambton Estates, decided one Sunday to skip church and go fishing. He is warned on the way to the river Ware by a literal witch that nothing good is going to come of his missing church. But John, not realizing he's in a legend, decides to go fishing anyway. He is unable to catch anything until the church bell rings the end of mass, at which point he catches an eel-like creature with nine holes on either side of its head. 
The witch tries to warn John that the thing he caught is bad news for humans. But John, presumably because he's a noble and has no time for peasants, just says he must have caught the devil and yeets the poor creature into the town well. John then leaves to join the Crusades, and to the surprise of no one, the problem does not go away, but rather the wronged Drakeling just grows up in a well, inadvertently poisoning the town water supply, and occasionally emerging to steal livestock until it gets so big that, unable to comfortably coil in the well any longer, emerges to coil as much as seven times around the nearby hillside. The angry worm, having been denied a proper childhood, then proceeds to terrorize villagers, eat sheep, and snatch small children like there's no tomorrow, making its way to the Lambton estate. John's father, a smarter man than John, figures out he can appease the worm by offering it the milk of nine good cows, or about 20 gallons, in a stone trough. Once the worm's had its milk, it goes back to sleep on the hill. This offering becomes a daily ritual for the Lord, and honestly, if you want the good ending to this legend, this is the part where the Lord embraces his draconic windfall. 20 gallons of milk a day is not a lot to pay in the grand scheme of things to have your village protected by a dragon 24-7. At this point in the story though, John comes back from the Crusades and tries to figure out how to kill the worm, and here's the interesting part of the story that often gets overlooked. Several people tried to kill the dragon, but if a part got cut off, the worm was able to simply reattach the severed part. In addition, when under threat, the dragon would uproot a tree with its tail and use the tree like a club against its enemies, demonstrating at least intelligence enough to use tools. John does eventually kill the dragon by finally listening to the witch and covering his armor in spikes. He fights the dragon in the river, and each time the worm tries to crush him in its coils, it accidentally cuts off pieces of itself, which get washed down the river before the dragon can pull itself together. Which brings us to the dragon-slaying aspect of Indo-European dragons. Indo-European dragons often run into trouble because of their proximity to humans. Much like how black bears and foxes get into trouble when they start digging through people's garbage cans. Habituation can lead to a lack of healthy boundaries. And, well, Indo-European dragons really like valuable things. Much like corvids, many dragons collect shiny things. And these collections turn into priceless hordes. Ironically, dragons with a horde to protect generally spend most of their time sleeping, raising the value of gold, and not bothering anyone. But the prospect of unimaginable wealth is a strong motivator. One of the earliest dragon slayers, Beowulf, only had to come out of retirement and slay a dragon after a thief found its hoard and stole a cup, waking the dragon up and sending it on a revenge terrorbender. This motif of dragons having the good stuff eventually turned into dragons themselves possessing magical properties worth stealing, such as in the case of Fafnir, a dwarf-turned-dragon. In his draconic form, Fafnir's blood gives anyone that partakes of it the ability to understand birds, 
which is part of the reason Regan sends in his pupil Sigurd to slay Fafnir while he's drinking from a spring. Likewise, apparently consuming the shed skin of a lindworm was believed to greatly increase a person's knowledge of nature and medicine. To my knowledge, there is only one story, however, of a dragon slayer using the whole living dragon as the thing of value he steals from a dragon. In Silene, a possibly fictional town in Libya, a dragon with a venom breath weapon was making its living in a pond outside of the city. Being in close proximity to the city and hungry, the dragon began eating sheep that grazed nearby. After it ate a young shepherd, the people of Silene began leaving two sheep as sacrificial offerings every morning beside the pond where the dragon lived. The dragon, now getting its meals for free, eventually ate all of the sheep and became habituated to human contact, associating humans with food. The people began offering their own children drawing lots in a lottery to see whose child would be offered to the dragon each day. One day, the king's daughter came up in the lottery, and, bizarrely, she was dressed as a bride and chained to a rock beside the pond. A passing man on horseback saw the child, and offered to stay with her until the dragon came, apparently not bothering to try and unchain her. When the dragon arrived to eat the girl, St. George stabbed it with his lance and subdued it by making the sign of the cross. The very confused but apparently also Christian dragon, now half-tame from all the handouts from humans, allowed St. George to tie the princess's girdle around its neck. St. George and the princess led the completely cooperative tame dragon into town, and George promised to kill it if the townspeople would convert to Christianity. All the townspeople converted, and St. George beheaded the dragon with his sword. In some versions, St. George then marries the child. Now, let's take a minute to unpack that Buckwild story. Listen, I get the impulse to offer your children to anything more powerful that happens to come along. I really do. Child rearing is hard. But, like, did we really exhaust all other options? For example, was there ever a village-wide attempt of everyone banging pots and pans together really loud and shouting at the dragon to go away? I'm just saying, there are so many capable predators that coexist with humanity. Bears, wolves, lions, hyenas. And yet we've managed to coexist with them for quite some time without having to resort to offering them our children. Coincidentally, this is also one of the stories that the Dragons Prefer Princesses stereotype came from, when, as you can hopefully gather from the story itself, any human would be just fine, and sheep are also just as preferable. But what I really want to highlight is St. George, who, after injuring and subduing the dragon, leads it back to town as a not-so-veiled threat to convert to Christianity. Seriously, St. George literally saves a child only so he can use a living dragon as a bargaining chip to convert a town to his religion, and he is commemorated for this. To be fair, though, 
if humans want to go after Indo-European dragons, they're gonna have to wait in line. No creature exists in a vacuum. Unless, of course, that creature is a water bear. And dragons are no exception. Indo-European dragons have a long history of strangling elephants, fighting ichneumon, stealing from dwarves, and fighting and eating each other. The strangling elephants thing first showed up in writings such as Claudius Alinius's 217 AD text on animals, where he claimed that Ethiopia was inhabited by a species of dragon that hunted elephants and could grow to a length of 180 feet, or 55 meters, with a lifespan rivaling that of the most enduring of animals. Most likely the creature Claudius was referencing was an exaggerated version of the reticulated python, a constrictor that can reach lengths of around 4.9 to 21 feet, or 1.5 to 6.5 meters. Likewise, the only natural predator of the Indo-European dragon, the ichneumon, is a ballsy reinterpretation of the Egyptian mongoose. Egyptian mongoose regularly go after asps, spitting cobras, and crocodile hatchlings and eggs, and so the ichneumon, when it sees a dragon, covers itself in mud, covers its nostrils with its tail, and attacks the dragon until either or both are dead. Mustelids really like to fight. Now, when it comes to dwarves, because of the fictional nature of both combatants, the nature of their quarrels is always treasure-related. Both species often find themselves in subterranean habitat, and both species value treasure, especially gold. Fafnir the Lindworm, as I mentioned before, was originally a dwarf that was turned into a dragon by some cursed gold given to his family by Loki as a sorry not sorry for killing his brother Otur while he was in otter form. Before he was a dragon though, Fafnir killed his father so he could have the gold and the family's not unsubstantial collection of treasure all for himself. To top it off, he's slain by Sigurd because his remaining brother, Regan, wants to steal the treasure for himself. This theme of dwarves rivaling dragons for greediness is echoed in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, as the reason Smaug first made his home in the dwarves' ancestral hall is the greed of the exiled dwarf king Thorin's father, who, after collecting the Arkenstone, becomes obsessed with acquiring and storing gold, apparently a whole dragon's worth. This greed is later revisited by Thorin's obsession with stealing the mountain back, which leads Bilbo to steal a cup, which, just like in the Beowulf saga, leads to Smaug ravaging the local town on a rage-fueled terror bender. Speaking of Smaug, an interesting exception to the savage nature of the European dragon is that Western dragons and worms have a well-established love of riddles, which is occasionally used to the advantage of the would-be dragon snack. In The Hobbit again, Bilbo is spared because he tells Smaug a riddle that the dragon is unable to answer immediately, and thus Bilbo has time to avoid becoming Dragon Chow. Of course, the magic ring didn't hurt either. With all these outside distractions, it's a wonder Indo-European dragons find time to fight each other. But don't worry, 
they do. In stories such as Tolkien's Farmer Giles of Ham, C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and one of the early legends of Merlin, there is at least one mention of dragons fighting, and in the first two stories, this results in some light cannibalism. Because, waste not, want not. This cannibalistic tendency of these dragons may have originated as a trait to highlight their greed, but could also have been inspired again by cobras, many species of which, such as the king cobra, actually eat other snakes as a primary part of their diet. In modern media, the western dragon and wyverns have gotten something of a redemption arc, with most modern fictions such as Aragon, How to Train Your Dragon, Harry Potter, and works like the Dracopedia series portraying Indo-European dragons as noble creatures like their eastern counterparts, but more fearsome. The hordes are now fewer and further between, and there's been an influx in the number of dragons that can communicate with humans and give sage advice. It seems now that we've stopped feeding them our children. These dragons have backed off from society somewhat, content to return to their mountains and give advice, and maybe even aid, to the occasional adventurer who has a good enough riddle. I hope you enjoyed part one of our global tour of dragons. Next week we'll take a look at some Asian dragons, but if you're hungry for more Indo-European dragons, Dig through the show notes to find more hoardable gems of knowledge. Intro and outro music were done by dragon writer Scott Ethington. Find more fire at Bazooka Raccoon at SoundCloud.com. Finally, if you like what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes, or consider donating to our Patreon. Every little bit helps, and more support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more monsters. Thank you for listening, and remember... Anyone can be a monster.